You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Hi, and welcome to episode 271 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I am an unemployed PhD. Joining me are two people who are not unemployed, David Grubbs, who is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. How's it going, David? Well, um, the rain, rain, rain came down, down, down in um, rising rushing rivulets. Um, Yeah, so... Uh, we're we're recording in the midst of of uh, Anilda and flooding, so um, hopefully I'm still around by the time this episode drops. That'd be good. Also joining us, uh, Nathan Gilmore, who is a professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I agree. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> I didn't throw anything over to you, did I? I, I figured you would. That. You would. I would. I figured you would assert yourself, <laughs> and I did. Last week we talked about Ralph Waldo Emerson's circles, and I talked about a terrible paper I wrote in which I read Eliot's Ash Wednesday through that essay. Today we're talking about Ash Wednesday, but before we get there, what's new on the network? All right, so we have a new episode of Core Curriculum. Still working our way through the Iliad. Uh, by the time this episode drops, it'll almost be ready for the third episode, but right now you can look at, listen to the second one on books three and four, uh, in which, uh, they explain why Paris is terrible. The character, not the city. (laughs) Also on the network, we've got a new, uh, city of man that looks like they're going to be doing a trilogy at least of episodes on, uh, H. Richard Niebuhr's book, Christ and Culture. Sounds Fine. good. Uh, I'm going to be recording with um, CFP later on this evening, an episode on board games. Um, I'm excited to do that one. It's a two. It's a two podcast day for David Grubbs. Woohoo! Well, we have talked about T.S. Eliot quite a bit on this program, so I don't, I don't think we need to give an overview of his life and work, but Ash Wednesday does occupy an important and perhaps somewhat odd, maybe odd's not the right word, uh, important, probably the best, an important spot in his corpus. It's the first major poem he wrote after his conversion to Christianity. And David, I wonder what extent uh, is this a poem about that conversion? That is an enormous and very good question. It's the um, only question I'll be asking for the entire show. Huzzah! Um, and I get first swing. Yay. I hope there's candy inside. Just the name Ash Wednesday cues you up for the notions of penitence, of turning away from one thing and towards another. Um, Ash Wednesday follows 
you know, Fat Tuesday and all of the, the revelry of carnival. Um, it's a, it's a, a time in which you uh, accept the symbol of your death uh, and also the symbol of the cross. And those things, um, no one should be surprised from reading the Apostle Paul, uh, go together in uh, Christian soteriology. So the, the, the title cues up the topic in a strong way. How exactly that works out through this poem is uh, a bit of an enigma. Um, I, I'm, I am not going to say in any way that I get everything that goes in here, um, but I'm going to accept that Ash Wednesday is the appropriate lens through which to read it. And what I do, um, I notice uh, imagery of death all through it, um, along with these hints of uh, the the possibility of the dry bones rising again, uh, an image from Ezekiel. So the the ways in which Christian conversion is, uh, especially um, in uh, the way that Paul talks about baptism, uh, the way that the Christian conversion is talked about as a as a uh, a death and a rising to new life. Um, this this poem seems very concerned with making sure that the death part happens. Now, this is uh, as you said, it's one of the it's the first major poem that he wrote after his conversion. But he does have some other poems post conversion, but before Ash Wednesday. One of them, uh, one of them being the Journey of the Magi. And at the end of that one. At the end of that poem, which is uh, about the, the, the Magi, the wise men who, who come and, and, and see the newborn Christ, the Magi says, uh, we were, were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We return to our kingdoms, these uh, our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. And that other poem, written um, not too long before Ash Wednesday, uh, I, I think helps confirm the way that I'm reading Ash Wednesday, that, that Eliot in, in, in his conversion is concerned about, um, the ways that new life is preceded by a death. And, uh, Ash Wednesday seems to be paying attention to how that works out in some different ways. Um, and what those ways are, I hope y'all will help me trace out. Nathan. Yeah, I mean, we're going to be touching on this uh, as we continue to discuss the poem, but I, what I found uh, interesting about this as a conversion poem uh, is that a lot of the questions that his early poetry raises uh, resurface here, but it's not simply that the answers have changed, but the significance and the location of the questions also shifts pretty dramatically, so... Uh, you know, we certainly have, as David said, images of death, uh, but they are not, uh, final. And moreover, uh, there is a horizon beyond that death that is something besides, uh, shoring up fragments against ruins. 
and I find that interesting. I think the calendar aspect of this is important. Now, I don't know what Anglo-Catholicism looked like in 1928, but I know that in 2019, Roman Catholicism, when you join the church, you tend to do so at Easter, and it's it's preceded, of course, by this penitential period that David mentioned, Lent. And during that period is when you do things like make your first confession. And in some ways, Ash Wednesday seems like a very oblique first confession. And you have a lot of language that's directly from um, from the liturgy. And in particular, this is at the end of Canto, is what I call them. I don't know what everybody else calls them. Section 3. He says, Lord, I am not worthy. Lord, I am not worthy, but speak the word only. That's the language um, that the church uses before the Eucharist, uh, which, of course, you receive when you when you formally join the church on Easter. So it's like he's looking forward to that. But the actual conversion, the actual joining the church, the um, confirmation, the first communion, all of that takes place off page after the poem is over. And what we get is this long highly unpleasant ramp up to it. Um, and, and anybody who's ever kept Lent seriously knows just how unpleasant it is. And so I think, um, I, th- I think the, the liturgical setting of the poem is really, really important here. That makes some good sense. His pre-conversion poetry is notable for its jagged, fragmentary quality. The most famous one is The, the Wasteland from 1922. And in that poem, he uses this style of free verse that very clearly, to the extent anything in that poem is clear, reflects his feeling that all of Western culture has come radically unmoored, including the poem itself in some ways. It would make sense if his conversion affected the style as well as the content of his work, but does it? Oh, man. So on a line-by-line basis, this is still difficult poetry, to be sure. Uh, So to dwell on any passage of three or four lines, I mean, will reveal a similar style to his pre-conversion stuff. And, and frankly, I mean, I, he, he doesn't get any easier after his conversion. But uh, I will say that when you look at it as a liturgical poem, as Michael just noted, uh, and as a poem that is anchored by biblical symbols, uh, I think there is something more of a... I, I, I don't know... I, I think the way that I would describe it is it is cyclical on the way to something eschatological. So it, be- yeah. it, it begins and ends with, I do not hope, I do not hope, I do not hope. But it begins with, because I do not hope, and it ends with, although I do not hope. And that's going to be significant as we uh, close out the discussion. But also, uh, I mean, all the way through this thing, I mean, you have uh, this progression, I would call it, uh, or a procession, pardon me. Uh, so it's not that history is in some Hegelian way uh, marching on towards, you know, uh, a an absolute freedom, uh, but rather the pilgrim uh, making the way through this mortal existence uh, is on the way somewhere. So, I mean, in, the, in that respect, I mean, you know, as I remember Wasteland, and I, I don't teach Wasteland, so it's been since grad school since I spent serious time with the wasteland but as i remember wasteland it ends largely with a a resignation uh it is a a surrender to this disintegration that's happening and you know it's a 
it's a peace that is not a hope, but it's a peace that is a resignation. This one, it strikes me, uh, like I said before, I mean, seems to be heading somewhere. Uh, Michael, you are, are both better versed in the liturgy and in modern literature. What have I left out here? The big difference to me stylistically between this and the wasteland is that the wasteland is scattered. It's like the, all the shards of Western civilization and Eastern civilization actually have fallen on the floor in the wasteland and he's, he's trying desperately to pick them up. So he goes all over the place, right? He's quoting uh, the Bhagavad Gita. He's quoting Edmund Spencer. He's quoting supposedly, um, what's her name, who wrote the book on the fairy, uh, the uh, the Fisher King. There's all sorts of different quotations such that um, he has a set of footnotes to that poem that actually don't elucidate the poem at all. It just shows you where everything comes from. And it's still an unholy mess, a, a literally unholy mess. Here, um, the the outside references in the poem are much narrower so you have um, quite a few references to Dante that we'll talk about here in a few minutes, and you have a lot of references to the liturgy, and it, it's um, stuff from the liturgy that's from the, the Bible. So it's more focused, and I think that's important because one of the things he's dealing with in this poem is distraction. I'm going to read this again. This is actually from the passage right above the Lord I am not worthy that I read earlier. Uh, so it's in Canto 3. The broad-backed figure dressed in blue and green enchanted the Maytime with an antique flute. And he's talking about the god Pan there. Blown hair is sweet, brown hair over the mouth blown, lilac and brown hair. Distraction, music of the flute, stops and steps of the mind over the third stair, fading, fading, strength beyond hope and despair, climbing the third stair. He's moving past distraction. And so in addition to moving towards something eschatological, he's moving towards something whole and undistracted. And I think that's important. So yeah, this is not an easy poem. Um, and, and maybe it's not any easier than The Wasteland, although I think a lot of it is easier than a lot of The Wasteland. But it is more focused than The Wasteland. Um, not in the sense of being a better poem. The Wasteland is probably the better poem. Um, but Ash Wednesday... Ash Wednesday is zeroing in on something in a way that the wasteland is not. Yeah, that makes some sense. Now, Michael, uh, and if we're going to talk about this later, you can tell me just to wait, but obviously very few things in Eliot are simple references to a single text. But did you see in those three stairs an invocation, at least, of the three steps at Ante Purgatory in Dante? Oh, I, I, I took them... My notes here have them, uh, or try to have them, as representations of the different, what, what do you call them? Plateaus of Mount Purgatory? What are they called? Uh, the terraces in my Terraces, the yeah. That, that's I the way I tried to read them. But tell, tell me what you make of the, the steps in anti-purgatory, because I don't remember that. Uh, I, mean, I remember they exist, but I don't remember what they represent. Right, right. I mean, the only reason I, I they, it invoked that for me is because there is still a sense of peril here in Canto Three. Uh, and, you know, there is a limited sense of peril in Ante Purgatory and Dante's Purgatorio that largely evaporates once you've crossed over the gate. So the fact that Pan is still interfering with things made me think Ante Purgatory rather than Purgatory proper. Well, and, and it would be weird for it, for it to be the um, terraces because the third terrace, uh, the, if we're talking, if the third stair is the third terrace, that's avarice. And I don't know what on earth Pan would have to do with that. He would seem to belong in the first stair, the lust, 
the lust terrace. So I don't I don't know whether um, whether it's right to think of him as going terrace by terrace through Dante or whether he's just using some of the imagery. I don't have an answer for that. So I have a question, gentlemen. At what point in Elliot's career did Ezra Pound stop being so formative in the final shape of his poems? That's a very good question. Because y'all were just talking about the fragmentary, frustrating nature of Wasteland. And one of the things that I remember, but I haven't dug into deeply, um, one of the things that I remember hearing is that Eliot's earlier drafts of the Wasteland were more fully formed, less fragmentary, and less frustrating, frustratingly enigmatic. And that Pound pushed him towards that uh that that patchy what's going on bit of this bit of that without a whole lot of structure sense that you get in wasteland now am, am am i remembering it accurately and if that's the case might the difference between wasteland and ash wednesday have to do as much with the effects of conversion possibly on his literary circle as on his style immediately? I don't have an answer to that question. I think it's a good question. Um, I, I don't know when they broke or if, if you could even really call it a break, when, when Pound stopped being so important for Eliot's work. But I've certainly never heard Pound mentioned in conjunction with Ash Wednesday. Right, okay. right. Yeah, but I'm I'm not an Elliot scholar nor the son of an Elliot scholar and I don't play one on TV. So it's it's just something I remember from a class long long ago and I kind of I, I remember at the time wishing that I could read the before pound got a hold of it wasteland. <laughs> Maybe that exists and I just have have never taken the time to dig and look for it. It does exist. If you want to read The Wasteland before Pound, it's, in my opinion, not nearly as good of a poem. Well, Pound's opinion, too, apparently. <laughs> and Elliot's. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Well, we begin this poem with a repudiation of hope. David, why is that a necessary beginning? One of the things that happens in Repentance is a kind of coming to the end of your own resources and powers. And the, the way that I read this um, is I do not, because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn, like that's, that's what the word repent means, right? The, the New Testament word that gets translated in English as repent has, has, has to do with this, um, directional orientation turning from something turning to something and he starts off by saying he has no hope to be able to do that but I do not hope to turn desiring this man's gift and that man's scope I no longer strive to strive towards such things why should the aged eagle stretch its wings why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual reign um, the hope that's abandoned at the beginning of this poem, at least, at least in 
my, my read of it is the abandon of a hope that will arise out of his own his own powers his own um uh waning gift waning scope it seems seems to be the suggestion here um so that if if he's if the 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 aged eagle is 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 that in which he he sees himself um so the abandonment of hope at the beginning is 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 hope in what uh, he can and what he can accomplish um, and what he can do um, in himself and then uh, after uh, after a few little stanzas of renouncing the blessed face and renouncing the voice because I cannot hope to turn again consequently I rejoice having constructed something upon which to rejoice he seems even to abandon um the the hope of being able to achieve well blessed face and voice um uh, a vision of what is ultimate blessing he seems to give that up and yet pray to god to have mercy on us and i pray that i may forget these matters that with myself i too much discuss and too much explain because i do not hope to turn again um to me it feels like self-abandonment um but at the same time an appeal to uh another power to not abandon to not abandon the hope which the creature in himself um cannot supply to himself um and yet not the presumptuous um not necessarily the the presumptuous confidence that that prayer will be heard um, instead, it is a teach us to care and teach us not to care, teach us to sit still, uh, a kind of resignation, a surrender of even even the anxiety that arises from the powerlessness and a, a, a waiting, um, a, waiting at the, a waiting at the door until the door opens. Um, hope over the course of the whole poem is uh, is brought again there's a return in the final uh, canto stanza whatever you want to call it um, although I do not hope to turn again although I do not hope although I do not hope to turn the because has turned into although right the except the 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 reason has become now uh, the the exception and those final uh those f the the final prayer and the appeal that the prayer would be heard is what is what remains at the end of the poem so um if there is an abandonment of hope i think i think it's right in the poem to read it as uh, abandonment in a, in a hope of a particular kind with a transition to a hope of another kind which nonetheless does not presume, but only requests. Hmm. What this invoked for me, and I again, I'm not sure, I'm never sure if I'm getting Eliot's, Eliot's references right, uh, is the poem in the Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius, uh, where he refers to hope and fear as the weapons of tyrants. Um, hmm. And in that context, you know, I mean, hope, 
specifically means, you know, the hope in the powers of human beings and human institutions to make things better. So, I mean, you know, it's a, uh, in that sense, you know, I mean, uh, giving up on that hope, uh, is something that, you know, has already happened in some sense, uh, in Eliot's earlier poetry, but, uh, again, you know, here it is framed differently. It's a, it's an abandonment of hope, not that yields to despair, but like you said, David, that yields to a, a different kind of hope, a different order of hope. Yeah, I mean, I, I think theologically, at least, hope is a virtue that exists only after despair of hope, right? So you, you have exhausted the hope that's in your own power, and now the only thing you can hope in is something outside of yourself. So it's not just, it's not optimism, right? Yeah. It's, uh, well, it's the end of, the end of Canto 3, Lord, I am not worthy, Lord, I am not worthy, but speak the word only. Um, the balance of those two ideas, uh, that, uh, one who does not merit an intervention and one who in themselves is not capable of achieving uh, that that for themselves. Nonetheless, the request is there and the request is spoken in in faith that the, that the one who hears does have the capacity, though the one without the power is also without the worthiness to legitimately request that that power be used. And yet, the question is still asked. Let's move back from Canto 3 to Canto 2, uh, which makes some oblique references to the Virgin Mary, to three white leopards, and to a juniper tree. I'm going to confess that this is the most difficult part of the poem for me, and I suspect I'm not the only person who feels that way. Nathan, I suspect Dante is going to be able to help us understand it. How is that? Yeah, so, I mean, the image of the juniper tree and three white leopards is from uh, T.S. Eliot's Hair Rock Days. Uh, he was the front man for a band that uh, toured with Poison. No, <laughs> I, uh, I'd say... <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, the juniper tree, I mean, this is what's interesting, is that uh, it's not only the Virgin Mary, three white leopards, and a juniper tree, but it's those three things plus the Valley of the Dry Bones. So what we've got yeah. going here is... Uh, you know, the opening exposition of the Inferno. Uh, and we've got the leopard, which is the beast of fraud from the Inferno. Uh, and we've got the juniper tree, which is from the Elijah narrative. And we've got the dry bones, which is from the Oracle of Ezekiel. Uh, so as I was saying earlier, uh, T.S. Eliot's uh, particular genius uh, includes, it's not exhausted by, but it includes an ability to juxtapose symbols to juxtapose narratives to put them in conversation with each other uh here we get the the very particular and the very individual vision of the salvation of dante's soul uh with the three white leopards and the uh, whoop, with the three white leopards and the virgin mary uh in the inferno we find out that uh it is the holy virgin who sends santa lucia who in turn sends beatrice who in turn sends virgil uh, to rescue the soul of Dante. But along with that, we get these grand stories of the apostasy of Israel because Elijah uh, finds himself provided for under a juniper tree after he confronts the prophets of Baal 
in First uh, Kings chapter 17, uh, and then of Ezekiel, a, a vision of the death of Israel uh, when, you know, he is in the dry bones. I mean, the reason that he has to prophesy to the wind and prophesy to the bones is because Israel has died, and the only hope for Israel is a hope that lies on the other side of death, whatever that means. So this uh, juxtaposition of the particular and the national, uh, of the collective and the uh, and the interior, uh, is something that you know makes this vision of Ash Wednesday, this repentance of sins, uh, encompass all kinds of stories of repentance. Um, I, I'm also tempted to say uh, that the woman in the white robe is herself. Uh, a, a symbol that Eliot is drawing from the book of Revelation, uh, in which the martyrs, those who bear witness, are, you know, shouting to God for justice, not in their own behalf, but in behalf of those who are oppressed on earth. So you have the forward-looking, you have the backward-looking, you have the particular, you have the universal. Uh, what I see in this uh, cluster of symbols uh, is like I said, just the pervasiveness and the scope of this vision of, of repentance. Uh, David, what else is going on there? Because there's a lot going on there. I was really confused about the lady because whenever you see a lady simply referred to as the lady and the lady in white and so forth, um, I'm expecting it to be the Virgin Mary. And it says... But, and yet it says uh, about eight lines in, eight, ten lines in, because of the goodness of this lady and because of her loveliness and because she honors the virgin in meditation, we shine with brightness. So is the lady the Blessed Virgin? Or, or is she is Santa lady... Lucia from Dante? Or Beatrice? Yeah, yeah so, um, you know, you were pulling the, the leopards from... Uh, the opening canto of Inferno, and I was wondering, uh, I, it, it's it's I almost want it to be a mashup between the opening canto, the first canto of Inferno, with uh, the ending of Purgatorio, um, in which uh, the lady from heaven comes with beasts into into the space with trees and you know just as uh, inferno begins with um dante lost in the dark wood um the space with trees and then here comes beasts three beasts and along with it a messenger who is ultimately sent by the heavenly lady um and then at the end of purgatorio we also have again um a vision of beasts uh, a lady, uh, and it's happening in um, not a dark forest, but a garden, but, but yeah, still that yeah. kind of uh, ar arboreal space. Um, it, it seems almost like it's a weird mashup. Have we have we entered hell? Have we left purgatory? Um, which is which? And for the soul who is in the throes of Ash Wednesday, for the soul that is in the throes of repentance can they tell the difference but again you know i'm I, I don't know whether this is whether this is me seeing what's there in a close reading of the text 
or um, this is just Elliot doing what he does so well, which is play his his tuning fork of other great texts and hope that his lines will bring up these other resonances. Um, so, yeah. Well, let's move on to another thing I find very confusing, which is Canto number five. Elliot gets very interested in language. I'm going to read uh, the first few stanzas of this canto, just so everybody gets a real sense of how difficult this is. If the lost word is lost, if the spent word is spent, if the unheard unspoken word is unspoken unheard, Still is the unspoken word, the word unheard, the word without a word, the word within the world and for the world, and the light shone in darkness and against the word, the unstilled world still whirled about the center of the silent word. O my people, what have I done unto thee? Where shall the word be found? Where will the word resound? Not here, there is not enough silence, not on the sea or on the islands, not on the mainland, in the desert or the rainland, for those who walk in darkness. Both in the daytime and in the nighttime, the right time and the right place are not here. No place of grace for those who avoid the face. No time to rejoice for those who walk among noise and deny the voice, uh, and so forth. Uh, especially that first stanza is just so incredibly dense um, and and so incredibly concerned with its own language that I get uh, I get lost. David, what role does language tell in the story of conversion that he is uh, telling in this poem? Ooh, the the difficulty of communication is 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 pervasive. Uh, this stand this little stanza at the beginning of I guess Canto Five recalls uh, an earlier one. Uh, in Canto 2, conclusion of all that is inconclusible, speech without word and word of no speech, grace to the mother for the garden where all love ends. Uh, This this weird little passage that seems to pick up Marian imagery and then, but at the same time, spins it in a way that's that's on the edge of, on the edge of bleak. end of the endless journey to no end um so here again we have this idea of of what is unspoken what is unheard if the lost word is lost the spent word is spent the unheard unspoken word unheard unspoken okay so even if that communication fails still is the unspoken word the word unheard, the word without a word, the word within the world and for the world. So even if the communication doesn't happen, that failure, that, that failure of, of meaning that seems so critical to the first couple of cantos, um, so central to that renunciation of hopes, um, even without that, nonetheless, there is there the word is there still within the world and for the world so um it's 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 john one right um the logos uh as uh the the eternal word of god um which is uh within the world as in uh the word through which all things were made um uh the Hebrews, all things are upheld by the word of his power. Um, 
uh, Justin Martyr talking about the um, the inherent the 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 divine logos um, in some way inhering in creation in order to ensure that the the reason that 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 shapes it and orders it um, remains with it to sustain it. So that the word within the word within the world is still there, and the word for the world, um, and this um, that shift from within to for, uh, just that little preposition in my mind shifts me from the function of the logos um, pre-incarnate in creation to the logos incarnate, um, who is. Uh, given for the world um, so that word is still there uh, the word is still within the world the word is still for the world even if um, these other failures to speak and to understand have occurred Again, and the light shone in darkness and against the word the unstilled world still world about the center of the silent word um this is this is the paradox again of john one which is that the word by whom the world is made and through whom the world is sustained enters the world and is not recognized and is opposed by the same world for for which he serves as the axis by which it spins um Oh my people, what have I done unto thee? I don't get that reference because I don't have. Uh, is that a? Uh, that feels like a quote. It is. And Michael, I'll let you have the liturgical side of it, but the biblical side of it, it is a rhetorical question from Micah chapter six, and the implied answer to the rhetorical question. Well, let me back up. Uh, it is Yahweh. Uh, issuing a reeve, a complaint against Israel, and saying, Israel, you are doing all these terrible things. Uh, oh, my people, what have I done to you? The implied answer to this rhetorical question is nothing that justifies this nonsense. So it's interesting. Okay. I mean, you know, this, yeah. this, uh, this world that resists the word, he connects it with, you know, at the very least, that biblical reference. Now, I also know that it, the Micah 6.3 uh, has a place uh, in the annual liturgy of the church. Uh, Michael, did you, did you, I, I've got it jotted down that it is liturgical, but I didn't jot down anything more. Yeah, it's part of what's called the improperia, uh, which is a, a series of statements and responses from the Good Friday service. Okay. So I figured it was apropos. I just didn't. Uh, I didn't trace it down. Uh, that makes perfect sense. Uh, th the word doesn't speak. Okay, again, you know, put your mind into the passion narratives of the Gospels, where the um, not complete silence, but the but the refusal of Christ to speak up in his own defense in a decisive way against his false accusers. Right, like a lamb, he is silent before his shearers, and yet. Through the prophets, that silent word speaks of what have I done to thee? Um, you know, what did I do to deserve this? As the unstill world is a world against 
that word that is at center. And then I don't know entirely what to do with the with the stanza that comes after the Micah quotation, but I will just note that he moves from uh, a, a a pattern of irregular end rhyme to a series of lines in which those rhymes still exist, but they are buried within the lines. So where shall the word be found? Where will the word resound? Found and resound are in those two lines, but they're not at the ends. One is in the middle, one is the first line of the next one. Not here, not there, not enough silence, nor on the sea, nor on the islands, not... So silence and islands, not on the mainland or in the desert or the rainland, and a rhyme internal to the line, those who walk in darkness, uh, both in the daytime and in the nighttime, the right time and the right place are not here, a place of grace for those who avoid the face. So all of those rhymes are still there, and, the, and that, that notion of... Uh, that old phrase rhyme and reason rhyme being the sense of pattern and order here that pattern and order is is there but it's obscured it's buried in the middle of the lines in the same way that word that silent word is buried and obscured um, is the silent axis the self-silent um, accused and suffering word um, I'm not entirely certain what he's doing with all of that, but I think it's a, I think it's really really cool. We talked last week about Emerson's view of spiritual progress in circles. Ash Wednesday is also quite obviously about spiritual progress, but despite that terrible paper I wrote, I'm not sure the two visions have that much in common. Nathan Besides Eliot's being substantially more orthodox than Emerson's, how would you characterize the difference in their visions? Both of them have to do with uh, roundness, if you will. So Emerson's vision, uh, as listeners will know if you listened to last week's episode, uh, is that the progress of history is such that it's not a uh, linear progress from here to there where we already know where there is, but rather it is a sequence of generalizations. So in other words, everything that is possible to think now as well as everything that seems irrational now later gets subsumed by a larger circle that generalizes both the, the thinkable and unthinkable now and creates a new system. Then that one generates its own contradictions and it is subsumed again by another one. Uh, this is a vision that, you know, like I said last week, I consider uh, pretty Hegelian, although I don't know whether... Uh, Emerson was aware of Hegel or not, or whether Hegel was aware of Emerson or not. This one, uh, by this one I mean Ash Wednesday, uh, involves a cycle to be sure. Uh, as we've mentioned a couple times already, you, we begin with, uh, I do not hope, I do not hope, I do not hope, I do not hope. But it begins with, uh, because I do not hope, it ends with, although I do not hope. We've got a lot of lines that are repeated in the beginning and the end of the poem. But what we get is what I would call a, a reference point that is beyond the transformation over time. So in other words, uh, the transformation gains its intelligibility uh, not from the fact simply that it encompasses what came before, uh, but that it is 
running alongside and reenacting a narrative of conversion uh, that is not discovered anew, but is inherited. Uh, so we get the biblical references, both the centurion from Matthew 8 uh, and the oracle from Micah 6. Uh, and then beyond that, you know, as we noted before, we have the reenactment of the Dantean narrative. We have the reenactment of the Elijah narrative. We have the reenactment of the Ezekiel narrative. So what we get is certainly new, but it's not something that generalizes the new, but rather it re-embodies the particularity of the old and therefore becomes a repetition with variation. Uh, so in that, in, in that sense, pardon me, uh, it is really quite opposite from Emerson uh, because for Emerson, what is new encompasses, generalizes, and ultimately nullifies what is old, whereas with Eliot, uh, it is only in reincorporating the old that anything new is possible. Uh, if you're familiar with, you know, Eliot's uh, famous essay, uh, Tradition and the Individual Talent. Yeah, I was going to um, ask about that. Yeah, I, I, that's where I was headed. That's where I was headed. Uh, you know, this is a, a theological uh, echo, at the very least, of that essay. So uh, that, that's a lot of what's going on. Um, David, what else is there uh, here that connects with Emerson, either uh, in common or as a departure? In common, there's... Um... Uh, I, I think I think a positive sense of the destruction of what is, though. Uh, I don't get any sense whatsoever uh, that I did from reading circles. Uh, you know, in in our last uh, episode, um, uh, I talked about Emerson kind of surfing the destructive wave uh, as it spills out forward and forward. Um, sort of seeing himself above it in some sense and able to applaud it uh, as the one who sees what the universe is doing. Um, the destruction that happens in this poem is one that the speaker is intimately involved in. His bones lie there and whisper. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, I I I I find Eliot's um, tacit self-abnegation much more attractive than the gleeful, um, uh, the the kind of uh, gleeful enthusiasm about the burning of everything else that I saw in circles. Yeah, and beyond that, David, and I, you just remind me of something else I noted, but I didn't write down is that Emerson's vision of the generalizing circle, the circle that's drawn around the previous system, uh, is very active. There are world historical men uh, who are making history happen. Uh, whereas for Eliot, I mean, it is precisely like you said, in the negation of the self, that one can inherit the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah become the bones first. Well, there's the bit where he looks down and sees himself essentially at a lower stage and he, he leaves it behind, which I, there, there's something in common there with Emerson saying, 
our moods do not believe in one another. And yet, not really. I mean, when Emerson says that there's no value judgment on which mood is right, and it's clear that, I mean, he's going up, he's progressing past what he was, which is, of course, what you need for conversion. Otherwise, you're just spinning your wheels. Yeah. Well, this is a huge, complex poem. There are whole sections of it we haven't even mentioned. Uh, on our way out the door, why don't each of you point to a section or two that merits further consideration? David, let's start with you. Yeah. In the fourth canto, there's two things that I wanted to point out. There's a unicorn and what I think is... Uh, uh, a fawn, a satyr, the god Pan, probably. Um, but there's also this mysterious white lady who is and isn't Mary. White light folded, sheathed about her, folded. The new years walk by, restoring through a bright cloud of tears. The years restoring with a new verse, the ancient rhyme. Redeem the time. Redeem the unread vision in the higher dream while jeweled unicorns draw by the gilded hearse. The silent sister veiled in white and blue between the yews behind the garden god whose flute is breathless bent her head and signed but spoke no word. What on earth is he doing here? Um, I... I certainly can't say with any kind of coherence, but these images of the magical unicorns are summoned from, you know, the wild and magical forest of the middle ages by the purity of the Virgin. Um, this magical creature comes forth and it lays its head in the Virgin's lap tame while it is wild for all else here. Uh, pan, the garden God, the one for whom panic is named. Um, the one to encounter in the wild is uh, to be frightened literally out of your wits. Here is tame and silent and um, magical, beautiful in the kind of way that uh, Pan is in The Wind in the Willows. <laughs> so it's, it's these images of, of the magical and the enchanted which can exist in this garden um, uh, the garden of the lady who is not yet spoken, um, uh, the one who seems to have in her power um, the restoration of something that was lost or something that remained yet unspoken uh, in the old dreams. I, I think I just find that beautiful. Nathan? Yeah, I want to point back to... Uh... Canto five, uh, the section that, that David spent some time on, but, uh, just as a, a reflection on the nature of conversion as, as rooted in a, a particular historical moment. Uh, and just to read those lines again, where shall the word be found? Where will the word resound? Not here. There's not enough silence, not on the sea or on the islands, not on the mainland in the desert or the rainland. for those who walk in darkness, both in daytime and nighttime. The right time and the right place are not here. No place for grace for those who avoid the face. No time to rejoice for those who walk among noise and deny the voice. And I just think 
of the darkness in the in that imagery and in the noisiness of that imagery and it is certainly an, an eternal meditation on the nature of conversion but it's also a reflection of a moment in history 1930 where you've got the radio that's constantly making noise you've got automobiles that have made the cities far uh far more uh well noisy uh and you've got you know a not necessarily the first time there's ever been a nocturnal culture, but certainly you're no more than a generation or two from the time when when the sun went down, people went in the house. But now you've got people who are walking in darkness. So, you know, what it makes me reflect on is, is the poet's particular role to connect those eternal structures and those eternal truths uh, to the very particular moment that we inhabit. So I really appreciated that in uh, Canto Five. If you like that, um, he returns to that theme rather heavily in one of the four quartets. I think it's Burnt Norton is the one that has all the the sound. Very good. But that 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 would obsess him for another decade at least. What have you got, Michael? Or have we already talked about yours? We've already talked about mine, but uh, I'm sure our listeners have more to say about Ash Wednesday, in which case they can get in touch with us on our Facebook group or on our website, which is christianhumanist.org, or they can send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. David, what are we talking about next week? Next week, we're going to talk about uh, texts that we've alluded to a few times, but never dealt with in detail on and on its own. It's Dante's letter to Con Grande. Big dog. I look. For, I look forward. To, we're, we're, yes, we really have a. Um, well, we have a straight line here, right? Emerson yeah. to Eliot to Dante, and we he references so much in this poem. I don't know where we'll go from that, but our listeners can uh, be sure to tune in next week and hear where we're going to go from that. Until then, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. This is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubb saying. Let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.